Well, one of my uh, most uh, memorable childhood memories involved in uh, kind of an act of, of cruelty on my part that I, that I kind of wish I could take back. We were out at my cousin's cabin out in the Lake of the Woods area, if you know that northern area, northern Ontario, beautiful area. And uh, we were kind of learning there. I must have been about six or seven, kind of learning how to shoot a pellet gun. And we, uh, when we first started to learn, we started by shooting at some tin cans that we, uh, that we put up there. And we quickly mastered the tin cans and, and wanted a little bit more of a challenge. See, tin cans kind of just stayed in one spot. And so, so we started shooting at little animals. And for the most part, we were, we were actually 100% consistent. We missed every time. But one time, I saw a squirrel rustling around on the top of a tree and took a shot and to my surprise, I actually hit it. And then I made one big mistake. I went and found that dead squirrel at the bottom of the tree and looked it right in the eyes. And once I did that and looked at those beady little eyes, those sad little eyes, I kind of had this flood of remorse and boyish compassion come over me. And I wanted nothing more at that point than to bring that squirrel back to life but I couldn't do it. And so I quickly said a prayer and asked for forgiveness and I buried the squirrel and the deed was done. Well, we're about to read about someone that does bring the dead back to life. And we're not talking about squirrels here, we're talking about humans and we're talking about the spiritual condition of humans. When we last left Ephesians 1, three weeks ago, we kind of got to the end of that chapter there. And and in that chapter, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul said he was praying for the readers of this letter, the Christians there in the ancient city of Ephesus. And we looked at how he was praying specifically for the minds of the believers. He prayed that they might know God, and he prayed that they might know the hope of God's calling and the, and the riches of his glory, glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe. At the end of that section there in verses 19-22 of chapter 1, Paul describes this immeasurably great power that God has, has unleashed on all of us who believe. He says that power is there at the end of verse 19, that it's in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is amazing, the kind of power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead that we looked, about, looked at a couple of weeks ago is the same kind of power that he used to bring us who believe to salvation. Well, you might ask, how is that the same? What is it about what God did to Jesus there in the tomb and later in his ascension that is similar to what God did in bringing us to the point where we believe in Jesus Christ. What's what's the main connection between those two things? Well, Paul answers that question, and and he makes the connection in chapter 2. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain Paul's flow of thought. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, turn them to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 10, and then keep your Bibles open there, and it'll help you if you follow along as we walk through that text. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them." Did you see the connection there in verse 1? The power that God used to bring Christians to the point where they believe in Christ is the same as the power that God used to raise Jesus and that both were dead. That's the connection. Both Jesus' being raised and the people becoming Christians need the kind of power that will raise people from the dead. Verse 19 of chapter 1, his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that might get you to ask another question, which is, in what sense are sinners really dead? I mean, everyone could see that Jesus was dead up on that cross, but sinners seem to be alive. Well, that's a perfect question to launch us into these amazing verses. So thanks for asking. We've already learned that Paul likes long running sentences. Chapter 1, verse 3 to 14 are one sentence in the original language. Verses 15 to 21 are sentence number 2. Now chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is again all one sentence in Greek. And what Paul is teaching here is that just as Jesus was dead, but God had raised and exalted him, you also were dead. And Jesus and God raised and exalted you. In this section, Paul reminds us of the futility of life before Christ in verses 1 to 3, and then the favor of God in Christ in verses 4 to 10. It's two sections, and that's your outline. And the main point is that just as God raised Jesus from the tomb, he also raises sinners from despair. Just like chapter 1, Paul is teaching us about the beauty and the wonder and the greatness of God. This is about how God in his great love and in his great kindness raises previously hopeless and helpless sinners to most unlikely and surprising and even undeserved places. So let's start with the futility of life before Christ. We could also call this the futility of life without Christ. 
But I say before because Paul is reminding these Ephesian believers who they were before they became Christians. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. He's reminding them of their lives before they woke up to the realities of Christ, before they were able to have these spiritual eyes that were able to see Christ up on that cross and what he did for them. And he's really just showing them the hopeless and helpless condition they were previously in. Look at the way he describes it there. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. As you read that, you need to notice the futility there, the utter helplessness, the utter hopelessness. It's almost like they were powerless to change their circumstances, like they, they, like they couldn't help themselves, like they were in slavery, like they were alive yet dead. It's almost what this reads like, doesn't it? It sounds like they were the living dead. Or better yet, the walking dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. See the irony there? Dead yet walking. So, you know, if you'd make this in, into a horror film, they, you'd picture all these kind of zombies walking around, right? But here you have three basic descriptions of people without Christ and without God's grace. The first is that, that they are, in fact, dead in a spiritual sense. There's no spiritual life. Yes, they're walking, and yes, we know that sinners can even talk about and evaluate God's existence, and they can even live as above-average citizens. And so to tell someone that they are dead, they obviously wouldn't believe you. But these people don't see things from a spiritual perspective or with spiritual eyes, and so they are self-deceived. You just need to to look back on what you were like before you were a Christian, to realize that this assessment of your spiritual condition is true. It's probably especially true of you who were saved later in your life, but even if you received Christ when you were young, you can look back and realize that your life was totally about you. There was no inclination to please God at all. Life was about getting your way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. So you were dead. But not only were you dead, it says that we were in some senses helplessly dead. We were in a sort of slavery. The New American Standard, which I read, uses the words according to, which is a good literal translation. But I like the English Standard Version and the New International Version there. They say, following the course of the world or, or following the prince of the power of the air. Those give a picture of almost a a blind sort of obedience to, to other powers. Sinclair Ferguson describes it this way. It says, An exclusively horizontal world and life view with its value system dominated our thinking, either engulfing us or fascinating us. At the very least, he says, it, it plagued us inwardly so that we were constantly attracted as if by a magnet to find our deepest satisfaction in the things that are transient, the things that are passing. That's what a walking dead person is like. 
They just sort of drift uncontrollably, almost, almost imperceptibly, wherever the wind takes them. Their thinking has been engulfed. They are ruled and find their deepest satisfaction in, in temporary fascinations. They're like a, a magnet to worldly attractions. And so how does Paul describe this here? He says, first, they follow the course of this world. They are fad followers. If the world can make it sound good, if it can provide some sort of instant gratification, a dead person will go there. It's almost as if we didn't have a mind of our own. We were slaves to pop culture, popular culture. All that means is that those that are dead in their sins will, will blindly follow the fashions, the trends, the worldviews of our culture. And they will follow without giving any thought to what God might think or to what the Bible might say. And so there's no godly influence at all. They, they just, by default, that's their default setting. They, they follow the course of the world. In our day, it seems like even professing Christians seem to have trouble discerning the winds of our culture. It seems like we sometimes go to more trouble to try and fit in than to stand apart. Standing apart causes more trouble than it's worth, and so we just kind of start to do and to act and to talk and to dress as the Romans do. And pretty soon it infects the church, and the church begins to act like the world too. And then the church doesn't look anything different than than any other club, the Rotary or the Lions Club, thing like that. There was actually a, a church that started to take the course of this world, and this church is talked about in the Bible. It's, it's called the Church of Sardis in Revelation 3, and it says there in describing the church, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. It's Jesus talking now. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Listen, we need to remember who we formerly were and that we are not that anymore. Why would we want to go back to acting like the dead? And so Paul reminds us that before God, before God resuscitated us, we followed the course of this world. We just kind of, no questions asked, followed the trajectory, the ways, manners, customs of this world. Secondly, Paul says that we were following unseen powers. He says we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's this? Who is the prince of the power of the air? Well, it's the devil, it's Satan. Unbeknownst to the believer, this is who they are following. If following the course of the world is out of blind acceptance of the culture, then this prince of the power of the air is the one who commands the culture. Ever since Adam sinned, the world without God is under the influence of the devil. His influence is always in the air. An unbelieving man follows. He follows the one who is always at work in the sons of disobedience. He's unseen, but make no mistake, he's very active. Job says, he's pictures him there at Job 1, that he's wandering to and fro. First Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Prince of the power of the air. While third, Paul says that we are following unbridled whims. Verse three, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Before Christ, whatever our flesh desired, we indulged those desires. We were at the mercy of our flesh. I feel like having it, and I'll take it. I remember part of uh, the golfer Tiger Woods' statement after he was caught in numerous sins. He said something to the effect of, I felt that I worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy the temptations that were around me. I felt I was entitled. Well, that's kind of a radical example, but it's an example of someone who indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But this, Paul says, is what we were all like when we were dead to spiritual things. Now to all these things, I just want to say that just because we were enslaved to them does not mean we are not responsible for them. We could not say it wasn't our fault. We were just captive to the world and the flesh and the devil. We can see echoes of this here, though, that we are sons of disobedience. We didn't just do this without thinking. We disobeyed. They were our trespasses and sins, and we are held responsible for them in front of a holy God. But Paul puts it this way, just to emphasize our hopeless and helpless condition without Christ. And just as an exclamation point, he says that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Not only were we dead, not only were we enslaved, but we were condemned. Children of wrath, children there, is a way of saying that we were marked by something. We were characterized by something, destined for something. In this case, before Christ, we were destined for God's wrath. Now, I know, you might object to an evaluation like that. After all, you've heard other people tell you all the time that you are loved, that God loves you as if you were the only one in the world to love. Well, that is true to an extent. God does love everyone in a a general sort of way. But if that's true, then how do you make sense of Ephesians 2, 3? That we were all, by nature, children of wrath, children destined for God's wrath, even as the rest of humankind, everyone. Those would seem to be two opposite messages. Well, the answer to that is coming in verses 4 to 10. God, in his love and in his kindness, has saved some. He sets his special, grace-filled, saving love, particular love, on those who will believe in the Son. But before that, we are destined for God's wrath. And if you were to look at yourself honestly, you would have to agree with that assessment as well. Before Christ, our entire orientation was self-absorbed and God-rejecting. Oh, we might have done some good things, we might have done lots of good things, but as long as we were without Christ, we fell short. And because we could not keep God's perfect standard, we were children of God's settled and righteous and just wrath. Even though we are created in God's image and loved in that way, And even though God loved the world and gave his only son, John 3.16, we did not believe, nor did we even love the son. John 3.19, three verses later, says that the light came into the world, but the people loved God? No, the people loved their darkness, loved the darkness rather than the light. So that was our life before Christ. This description is not just 
in Ephesians 2 or in John 3 or in Romans 1 and 2 and 3. These are the consistent teachings of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Without Christ, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Desperately sick. If you're here today and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, let me ask you if you feel that desperation. If you do, then you're beginning to understand your need for a Savior, for someone to rescue you from that desperate state. You're starting to realize your sense of hopelessness, and that's a good place to be because we should all feel that sense of desperation. And when we feel that, even if it's in hindsight as we're looking back to our former lives, when we feel that, we will better understand our need for what comes next. It's out of that sense of hopelessness and helplessness and desperation that these next verses will seem glorious and amazing and hope-filled. Where before we lived in the futility of life without Christ, if you keep on reading, we read of the favor of God in Christ. When we truly understand verses 1 to 3, the first two words of verse 4 will, will be like a, like a sip of ice-cold water after four days, whatever, in a hot, dry, dusty, arid desert. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were condemned. But God! You feel the weight of those words? Those words need to be sweet and, and tasty to a parched mouth. We were dead, but God did something about it. But God acted. The Bible has lots of those life-changing little contrasts. Look over and, uh, or you can just listen to, to Psalm 102. And I'm just going to give you a few samples of, of these things. Psalm 102, verse 8. My enemies have approached, reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are, lengthened, are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. You sense the despair there? The next words. But you, O Lord, abide forever in your name to all generations. And he goes on to talk about how great God is and how he has acted to save Flip over to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Just two verses there. Verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Or in the New Testament in Romans 3. Romans 3. All of chapter 3 until you get to verse 21. But look at Chapter 3, verse 9. Verse 10. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Then the next two words. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Pay attention to those contrasts. The point of these is that without God, you would be in a heap of trouble. 
You need to see yourself that way first. And when you do, your desperate need for God's intervention will become very obvious. And you will worship God, not haphazardly, not just in autopilot mode as we sometimes do, but with a kind of worship that is due his name, exuberant, with gusto, because of what he has done for us, because of his intervention for dead sinners. He's grabbed you out of the fire. He has really lifted you up off of the mortician's table. You were dead, but God. Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones says that those two words, but God, in and themselves, in essence, contain the whole gospel. Well, what did God do? What did God do to reverse this predicament in which all humankind finds itself? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so the first thing we read is that God's rich mercy and great love made us alive. Grammatically, we finally get to the main verb in this one sentence. Everything he's written so far leads to this. The main action is there in verse 5. God, verse 4, even when we were dead, Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. What a reversal. What a miracle. God raises the dead. He did it throughout the Gospels as he raised the dead to life. He raised Christ. And now he raises dead sinners together with Christ. How great is that, Christian? By grace you have been saved. In God's undeserving favor, you have been raised to life and saved. And not only that, he, verse 6, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The same thing he did for Christ, he did for us. Raised from the dead and now exalted. This is rich mercy. This is great love. Do you get this? You were dead. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive. People have tried to use many different kinds of illustrations to try to get at this truth, try to get your head around it. I've heard the one about the person drowning and, and just at the last minute someone throws them a, a, a life preserver and they're saved. But that's not totally accurate because that person was still clinging to some sort of residue of life. But Ephesians 2.5 says we were dead. We were unable even to grab onto the lifeboat. I've already used the illustration of being on the mortician's table and and someone comes to resuscitate you. That's getting a little bit closer. But the best illustration probably comes right from the Bible itself. It's the story of Lazarus in, in John 11 that I had Pastor Wayne read. Here's someone who is dead. He's wrapped up in grave clothes. His grave clothes are on. His body has been in the tomb for days. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, comes, has the stone that covers the tomb removed, And he yells toward that dead, smelly body, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks right on out of that tomb. That's what it means to be alive together with Christ, or to be made alive together with Christ. He does the same for us. Even though you were dead in your trespasses, even though our sins make us putrid in God's sight, in his great love and in his rich mercy, he sent Jesus And Jesus, through his life, 
and his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father yells, come forth! And when he calls forth life, there's life. It's only through the Son that we can have spiritual life. If we repent of our sins and we put our trust in Christ's work on the cross, he will grant us eternal life. Our inability to keep God's law condemns us. But if we repent and then put our trust in the sacrificial, substitutionary death of the one who kept God's law to the T, then we not only can have our sins forgiven, but we can be raised to new life. God is rich in mercy. God's love is great. What else has God done? Finally, God's immeasurable, rich grace saved us. You see that there in verse 5, and then again in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. But look at verse 7. Verse 7 says that you have been made alive and raised so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to see what this is saying because it's hugely important for how we see God's motivation in saving people. I even put there in the notes that God's immeasurable grace saves us. But the, so studying this later on this week, the Holy Spirit taught me something amazing. Here's a question to think about. What is God's ultimate, his ultimate, not his secondary, his ultimate motivation for saving people? Is it, as we sometimes, I think, erroneously sing, he thought of me above all? Is God's ultimate reason that we are very important and special to God and, and that's why he had to save us? Verse 7, I think, gives us the ultimate reason and then the secondary reason. Look at it. It says, he made us alive in verse 5 so that, here comes the reason, he might show, he might display, he might demonstrate, he might reveal what? What's, what does he want to reveal? He wants to reveal the surpassing riches of his grace toward us who believe. The purpose of making people alive is so that God might make a, a grand display of his grace. I mean, this is the fireworks. This is the, the grand finale. Bethlehem displays God's grace. Jesus' miracles are a display of God's grace. The horrors of the cross display God's grace. The resurrection is a display of God's grace. How does he display it? He displays it in those he saves so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So make sure you get this point clear. We are not the ultimate reason God made us alive. We are the recipients. We are the, the benefactors. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We were blood-bought. We are adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are given eternal life. But what is God's purpose? The purpose is to display God's grace and God's glory. We already saw this in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, all of this happened to the end, finally, that we who were the first in hope to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We would be to the praise of his glory. When we think about God's work in salvation, it should always lead us to praise God for the surpassing riches of his grace. When we think about what God has done for us, when we try to just wrap our heads around how God saves and changes dead, self-exalting sinners, 
we should praise God for his mercy and for his love and for his grace and for his kindness. This is Paul's point from verse 7 right up to the end of verse 10. God deserves the glory for all this. What God has done in making us alive ought to cause us to proclaim him. Don't ever forget that. Don't start taking credit yourself. Paul is driving this point home to the church there in Ephesus and to our church here today. God has displayed his grace in granting dead people spiritual, eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We could spend a lot of time talking about that part, but I just want you to keep Paul's point in mind here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, God, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what? So what is this difference does this make for us? Well, there's lots of applications we could take out of this. But here's one so what, just for our church. For our church, this ought to drive us to be God-centered and God-glorifying and Christ-exalting in everything we do. In our children's programming, in our parenting, we should always point to God as the ultimate hero, as I said to the kids, to the children there, and as the one who deserves ultimate praise. David is not a hero for killing Goliath. David knows that himself. The Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, he says. You can go through all the top ten Sunday school stories. Noah's Ark, Joseph, the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho, Gideon, Daniel. You know, the Bible always points to God as the ultimate deliverer. Make sure your children know that. Don't settle for less than that. Teach them, my God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Well, that's the children. In our music, this is why we try to make sure we sing God-exalting songs. I'm thankful for the people that pick the music in this church. They do a great job. But this is the final criteria by which we evaluate songs. We look at the content. Yeah, you know, music and those things, it needs to fit musically. But of ultimate importance is the content of the songs. Do they point ultimately to God and, and to his grace and to his salvation? Do they magnify the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, once dead sinners in Christ? And as preachers, we're not off the hook here either. Do we preach God? Or can our preaching sometimes drift into man-centeredness? We ought to evaluate our preaching. And we expect you to challenge us on this if we, if we have a preaching fail with that same question. Have we pointed people to God's saving acts and salvation through Christ? Or are we trying to preach a popular message? Are we, trying to, are we preaching Christ and him crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness? Are we proclaiming God as a God of mercy and love and kindness and grace so that our people boast not in themselves, but that they boast in the Lord who saved them? Well, this is a great, God-glorifying passage on God's grace. For, for you whose story ends at Ephesians 2, and I know there might be some of you who are in that despair and who say, I'm done here, chapter 2, verse 3. I would encourage you that God still does, verses 4 to 10. He still raises the dead. Realize that even though you are dead, God can make you alive as you... Repent of your law-breaking ways and, and trust in the perfect law-keeper. Jesus, perfect God, perfect man. 
For those of you who have already been made alive together with Christ, just ask you to reorient your life so that you proclaim the surpassing riches of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. If John Newton had another rhyme for that, he could add another part to that as well, that I once was dead, but now I live. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our, our hearts have been stirred again at your majesty, at your amazing grace, at your great love, at your free kindness, at your rich mercy. Lord, we thank you for reminding us of the immeasurable riches of your grace. And we're amazed, even, even surprised that you would display that grace toward us. Thank you that in your great love and through your precious Son that you have taken spiritually dead, hopeless, helpless people and made them alive in Christ. What a great gift. And this is not of ourselves. It is the, the gift of God to all those who repent and believe. May we live our lives, may we pray in, in, in such a way that all, our, all of our praise is directed towards you and you alone. And may we be faithful to proclaim your grace to all those who are in need of salvation, in need of being born again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.